All right, if you would grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we'll just be camping out on verse 7 this morning as we consider Peter's instructions for husbands. I'll go ahead and read the text for us just so that we're oriented before we even make some preliminary comments. Here's what the text says. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, last week, wives were called to be subject to their husbands with that same connecting word, likewise. Likewise. That word connects this section to what came before, namely to the other categorical calls to subjection. Peter's been dealing with Christian subjection for the Lord's sake so that we would live honorable lives among non-believers and demonstrate the glory of Christ through our obedience to him. First, there was the general category of Christians being subject to governing authorities. Then there was the category of slaves being subject to their masters. And then, likewise, wives were called to be subject to their husbands. And now, it's likewise husbands. Likewise, husbands. That is to say that today, we'll learn how the husband is to be subject. Peter has not yet left the submission theme as indicated by his employment of that same connecting word, likewise. The husband's role as the head of his house does not mean that he is not called to subjection. He is, likewise, husbands. A husband's authority in his home over his wife is not an absolute authority any more than the state's authority over us is absolute or a master's authority over his slave was. God tells the state how to wield its authority, and nations and their leaders are accountable to him for whether or not they steward the authority that he gave them the way that he commanded. God told masters how to treat their slaves, and they are accountable to him for whether or not they use their authority properly. And so it is that husbands, a husband's authority rather, is constrained by God's clear commands about, he, about how he is to use the authority that God has given to him. And we, as husbands, will be held accountable for whether or not we use our authority properly. Before treating our text, though, let me make some contextual notes. And by that, I don't mean biblical context. I mean cultural context. In 2022, the most common misuse of husbandly authority is disuse or non-use. That is to say that husbands in our day don't exercise their authority either because they're afraid of their wives or because they've been trained by our feminist culture that any male exercise of authority over a female is evil and tyrannical. So we've got two generations of American Christian husbands, at least two generations, who've made it so that when God says, quote, wives submit to your husbands in everything, that practically means that she'll submit to nothing because most husbands have bought the conventional wisdom of our age, which deems it outdated, archaic, and unenlightened to place the leadership of the family in the hands of the husband. We favor a flat, totally equal, 100% partnership to the Bible's teaching on male headship. Our Marxist tendencies have made us very suspicious of any kind of hierarchy, whatever, Unless someone previously viewed as having been low on the hierarchy somehow assumes power, right? Be it women, blacks, gays, etc. 
In other words, we hate hierarchies unless you put a black lesbian at the top of it with lots of straight white male subordinates. Then we're all like, yes, hierarchies are great. This is a good one, right? But besides that, no hierarchies. Now, sadly, many Western Christian men actually feel noble while we disobey Scripture. Men often brag about their submission to their wives, making sure that everyone is well aware of the fact that they aren't one of those toxic men who defines leading their wife as anything other than serving her. And that is what we've done, isn't it? We've defined leadership as servanthood. And in that sentence, when I say we've done this, I mean me and others like me in the pastoral guild who for years preached sermons about male headship that boiled down to, you lead your wife by serving her. You lead your wife by serving her. You guys have heard these sermons. Many of you who are looking at me right now are like, yeah, I've watched you preach them. I've seen that a time or two. I remember you were very emphatic in many of them and you like pounded things. I remember those. So that's what we would say. We'd say, you lead your wife by serving her. Here's what we weren't saying. We weren't saying your leadership of her is your service to her. We weren't saying that. We were saying you lead her by serving her. In fact, we were saying the only way that you're allowed to lead her is by serving her. I'll illustrate my point. I had a conversation with a lifelong Christian man a couple months ago, and we're talking about the family, and I said some things about the need to recapture male leadership in the household. And he agreed with me, but he went on to explain what he meant by male leadership in the home. Here's what he said. He said, a husband is there to make sure that all of the wife's needs and wants, he included this, needs and wants are met. That's his job. She wants to watch something else, you change the channel for her. She needs something out of the car, you go get it for her. She needs a jar opened, you open it for her. She wants a new outfit, you buy it for her. After all, and here's where it got biblical, the Son of Man came not to be served, or excuse me, not to, yeah, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so a husband, following the example of Christ, is to be his wife's servant. And quite sadly, this particular man is his wife's manservant. Having had all the masculinity dutifully trained out of him, such that the words, yes, dear, are as natural coming from his mouth as the words, my pleasure, from a Chick-fil-A employee. I had another conversation with a lifelong Christian man that I met at a wedding that I officiated recently. He's an older guy with three grown daughters, and so I asked him, as is typical when I meet somebody who's further along than me, I asked him, hey, what advice would you give a younger guy like me who's just trying to lead his family properly? And he said, without missing a beat, you need to know the three ups. I said, okay, what are the three ups? Tell me about the three ups. He said, show up, shut up, and pay up. That's all you need to know about how to lead your family. That's what a Christian man does. You show up, you shut up, you pay up. It's the three ups. Now here's the deal. You can preach that version of male headship in any church in America and receive thunderous applause and hearty affirmation. Because that version of male headship makes the wife the head. And everybody's okay with that in modern American culture, even within evangelicalism. Her needs, her wants, her preferences dictate the man's behavior. And you know what that makes her? That makes her his direct report, doesn't it? You see what it's done. 
So the construal of male headship as servanthood is simply the crafty, satanic way of making the patriarchy into a matriarchy. And hear me well, it's always one or the other. It is always one or the other. You see, egalitarianism, that's the doctrine which states that the husband and wife have equal authority. That doctrine isn't just wrong, it's impossible. It's impossible. And if you listen carefully to any egalitarian Bible teaching, you'll notice that it makes the wife the head of the household by making her husband into her servant. Which is again to say that even egalitarians can't maintain egalitarianism because as I've just demonstrated, they just make the wife the head of the household. Now this is all done under the guise of biblical exposition. But what you'll notice is that you have to exegete a husband's servanthood from passages of scripture that aren't talking about husbands. <laughs> Has anybody ever noticed that? So you can quote Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve. I can't get that right this morning for some reason. Came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you can apply that text to husbands to make your egalitarian point. But if anyone's paying attention, they'll wonder why egalitarians never seem to make any of their points using Bible passages that actually talk about husbands and wives. But of course, it's clear why they don't, isn't it? It's because the texts that actually teach us about a husband's role explicitly use the language of authority, not servanthood. And they highlight his leadership, not his service. I bring all of that up so that I can say this. The problem that we're wrestling with in our culture and in our time in 2022 is different from the problem that Peter was wrestling with during his time. Peter actually did live in a patriarchal society that placed women below men hierarchically and often, sadly, ontologically. So he actually had to restrain men from the misuse of their authority, whereas Pastor Luke and I are trying to push men out of their disuse of husbandly authority. So I want to make that clear at the outset, not to undermine what Peter's going to teach us this morning. We do need it, of course, it's Scripture. But just to be sure that we don't buy the cultural lie that the abuse of patriarchal power is prolific in our time. It isn't prolific in our time. It is the disuse of patriarchal power that is, per, that is prolific in our time. Because Christian men don't believe that God has formed and fashioned them for leadership. They believe that he formed and fashioned them for servanthood. Because that's what their pastors taught them. And they have obeyed. Now, a society is easily understood by its maxims, that, that being the, the truisms and phrases that, that we encapsulate in, in pithy form. You can tell what a society is like if you can see its maxims. And that makes the fact of Western matriarchy pretty effortless to detect, doesn't it? Because ours is a society that has produced the maxims, happy wife, happy life. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Those are matriarchal maxims. Our society did not produce the maxims, happy husband, happy home. I've never heard that. I've also never heard the maxim, if daddy get moody, you better cover that booty. That'd be a good one, but I've never heard anything like that. Those would be patriarchal maxims. We have none of them. Now, if I'm wrong, somebody can tell me about some of the patriarchal maxims that I, I may have missed. But as best I can tell, we do, in fact, live in a matriarchal society, despite all of the yelling and noise on CNN. Now that doesn't make this morning's text irrelevant by any stretch, 
But we must consider our times carefully if we're going to make application of this text wisely. Now, that prologue in place, we can consider the husband's subjection. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, honoring her as the weaker vessel. Peter's teaching us that the husband's submission is not to his wife, but to her nature, as God has shaped it. In other words, Peter does not call husbands to submit to their wives, but he does call them to submit to the way that God made their wives. As we've covered in the past uh, teaching series that we've done, a man is called by God to lead, to cultivate, to build, and to produce in every domain that he inhabits. He is to lead and cultivate his wife, such that under his leadership, she is becoming more like Christ, flowering all the more into a beautiful and godly woman, precisely because of his leadership of her. Here, Peter is giving us some insight into how we are to lead and cultivate our wives, such that they do flower and flourish under our leadership. But Peter wants to make sure that we understand that cultivation and domination are two different things. Cultivation and domination are different. See, Peter envisions a woman who, under her husband's headship, is thriving. She's well honored in her household. She's treated like an heiress of the cosmos, heirs with you of the grace of life. He's not envisioning a woman who is downtrodden, regarded as lowly or of little consequence by her husband, or treated like her being under his authority means that she's basically just like one of the children that she's raising. It's important for Peter to strike these notes because he's addressing men in a time when we were still men, not just male. Before we put estrogen-inducing soybean oil in every product, and docility-inducing fluoride in the water supply, and institutionalize men by encouraging compliant, mild-mannered feminine behavior because it's easier to manage in a classroom setting. This was before all of those things, when men were still rough, tumble, aggressive, etc., etc. So Peter knows our pitfalls and our proclivities as unemasculated men, and that's what he's speaking to here. He knows that to a hammer, every problem is a nail, and force is the default solution. So he tells husbands that our default setting or preferred leadership style cannot be determinative of how we lead our wives, because we must submit to the nature of the woman that we are leading. One of the things that Peter's telling us here is that our goal in our relationship with our wives is her growth in grace, not her submission to us. Hear me well on that. Your goal is your wife's growth in grace, not her submission to you. Now, does her growth in grace include her submission to you? Of course it does. I'm not arguing for a separation. And also don't understand me or don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that her goal isn't her submission to you. It is, because that's what God commanded her. But her submission to you is not your first or primary goal. Her submission to you is far too easy a thing to come by. I mean, truthfully, your wife's submission to you is far too easy a thing for God to make that your goal. Making my wife submit to me is easy. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I make all the money, and everything's in my name. I'm just being candid, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Getting my wife to submit to me is incredibly easy. That's a horrible goal. That's too flimsy and small a goal for the God of the universe to lay that at the feet of his men. That's easy. That's not the goal. 
The goal is her growth in grace. I'm called to shepherd my wife into obedience to God's will, not bend her to my will. And per this morning's text, I'm called to shepherd her into obedience to God's will in a way that honors her. You see that in the text. Honor her as the weaker vessel, not exploit her weakness to impose your will. You see the difference in these ideas. So again, we must submit to how God made our wives and let who they are determine how we lead them. Carpentry has taught me a lot about this, in fact. If I'm working on a pine deck, I can be pretty aggressive to get the wood to sit how I want it to. If we need to work a board into a tight space, I can grab a mallet. I can punish that pine deck board into submission and get it to sit how I want it to. Just force it into place. But if I'm putting up thin metal trim coil along the roof line of a house, which my boss hasn't actually trusted me to do yet, but if I was doing that, I wouldn't be able to bang it or beat it into place because it's too delicate a material for that. In banging it and bending it into place, I would make something that's supposed to be beautiful look ugly. The material's too delicate for me to use the same tool and technique that I would use on a pine deck board. As a craftsman, and as a man, that's what you are, you're a builder, you're a cultivator, you're a producer. As a craftsman, you have to submit to the nature of the material that you're working with rather than thoughtlessly picking up your hanger, your hammer, and, and pounding away. You may get it where you want it using a hammer, but you may ding, dent, or even destroy it in the process, in which case you've failed. God has most assuredly placed a husband over his wife hierarchically but he has also told him how to and how not to wield that authority. Live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Or Colossians 3.18, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We are called to build up our wives and the material out of which God has made them is delicate. So the call to husbands is to take great care and caution in the way that we handle the precious wife that God has entrusted to us. Or as Luke has taught us well before, men are supposed to be hard for their wives, not hard on them. Now to make sure that we're flowing in the stream of Peter's thought, let's look back at two big ideas that he's already introduced to us so that we can see how they relate to the verse that we're in this morning. You don't have to turn back to these, I'll read them for you, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we're supposed to abstain from the passions of the flesh and not conform ourselves to the passions of our former ignorance. Now, notice how that idea relates to chapter 3, verse 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, literally, that would be rendered, live with your wife according to knowledge. So put that together. Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Live with your wife according to knowledge. You see the thread and the ideas there. Don't be conformed to your former passions or your former ignorance. Live with your wife according to knowledge. Now, knowledge is the opposite of ignorance. But what is this former ignorance? 
Well, it's living life ruled by the passions of your flesh. That is the former ignorance. See, your flesh is ignorant. Did you know that? Your flesh is ignorant. It literally doesn't think, it just feels. That's what your flesh does. Flesh doesn't function on the basis of knowledge and understanding. It's driven by raw desire. It wants what it wants when it wants it without regard for anything else. It's impulsive. The flesh, in fact, accounts for most of our horrible decisions because when we bend to the flesh and put the flesh in the driver's seat, we suppress our knowledge. That's why people will ruin their lives for 20 minutes worth of sexual satisfaction. Right? They weren't thinking. They succumbed to the ignorance of raw feeling. No teenager wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what? Today I'm going to make a life-altering decision to sleep with my girlfriend, after which she'll become pregnant, and then I'll either drop out of school to work multiple, multiple part-time jobs to provide for them, or maybe I'll just resign myself to half of my income going to child support for the next 18 years or so. No, he, he didn't think that through on a Tuesday morning. Right? It was not thinking, it was feeling. It's flesh-induced ignorance. Similarly, the adulterer isn't thinking leading up to the adulterous act. Today's a good day to break my family apart and estrange myself from my children and maybe cripple myself financially. It's just Wednesday. Let's do that. Of course not. It's flesh-induced ignorance. It's not thinking. It's feeling. When we operate on the basis of the flesh, we are necessarily functioning based on ignorance because the flesh doesn't think. It just feels. The flesh is undiscerning and indiscriminate, which is why we cannot be controlled by it, but rather are commanded constantly in the New Testament to take control of it, to subdue it. Not because it's inherently bad, but because it is inherently ignorant. So we're not permitted to interact with or lead our wives on the basis of our flesh or our passions, because that flesh is ignorant. And we're supposed to lead our wives in accordance with knowledge. We're called to interact with and lead our wives according to our knowledge of them. Now, what knowledge is that? I believe Peter tells us. We're called to interact with and lead our wives according to the knowledge of who they are, whose they are, and how he wants them returned to him. We're called to live and interact with our wives according to the knowledge of who they are, whose they are, and how he wants them returned to him. So we'll answer those questions that may arise. Who is she? Whose is she? And how does he want her returned to him? Well, first, who is she? Peter tells us that she is the weaker vessel. Women are weaker than men. It's a shocking revelation, I know. They're physically weaker, and they're emotionally more vulnerable. I know both of those things are unacceptable to say in 2022, and, and many of you may have even just had exceptions raced to your mind. Did, did you just say physically weaker and emotionally more vulnerable? Well, I know so-and-so, and I know such-and-such, but here's the thing. All of the exceptions that just leaked to your mind are exactly that. They are exceptions to a rule. Take my meaning. So a man is supposed to know that his wife is weaker and live with her in such a way as to show not only that he knows about her weakness, but also in such a way as to show that he honors her weakness. He should honor her weakness because he understands 
that that weakness also constitutes her unique strengths as a woman. A woman is a strong nurturer because she knows her own weakness. Her weakness underscores the necessity of nurture, you see? She knows how to give what she knows she needs. So God has produced in women a weakness that gives them strength in a multitude of other categories. A man should know this, understand this, and then live with his wife in such a way as to honor that weakness because he sees the way that it shoots strength into his household in all these other ways. Her weakness is the ground of her tenderness and her gentleness and her kindness and her softness, which is the complement to a man's comparative roughness. Or as my wife has helpfully said, men build houses and women make them homes. So her weakness, as compared to a man, is strength. It's her strength as a woman and the very thing that we need our wives to be. So we are to honor their weakness. We aren't to be annoyed by it. We aren't to act as if it's an inconvenience. Or worse yet, we aren't to exploit her weakness and use her weakness against her. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say if we were to do such a thing, that our prayers will be hindered. The way that you treat your wife necessarily informs the intimacy level that you can have with the Lord. So we are to honor our wife's weakness. A woman's weakness should never be a liability in the presence of her husband's strength. A woman's weakness should never be a liability in the presence of her husband's strength. Second, whose is she? Whose is she? She's a fellow heir with you of the grace of life. That is to say that your wife is an heiress. She's a blood-bought member of the family of God, and the king of the cosmos calls her daughter. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking about the overplayed trope that is the daughter of the king. I, I'm a daughter of the king. This has been somewhat of a, a movement in evangelicalism, tickers, stickers, t-shirts, water bottles, you know, I'm a daughter of the king, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's funny that there's no male counterpart to that, you know, like I've never seen a guy with his water bottle that says, I'm a son of the king, just thought you should all know and celebrate me. But then, what is that? Except showing another difference that exists between men and women, which we'll probably talk about later. But however overplayed or misapplied the I'm a daughter of the king trope may be, this text is clear that a husband is to treat his wife in a way that demonstrates his knowledge of that fact. That you're supposed to live with her in such a way that shows that you understand that she is an heir of the grace of life. So you treat your bride like an heir who stands with you. Now, she is called to serve you as your helper, but you honor her for that service. You don't take it for granted. You don't view yourself as worthy or deserving of it. No, you praise her for it. You lavish her with love and gratitude and honor in response to her help and service. See, many of the problems in our marriages would be fixed if we were truly grateful for the unique contributions that our spouses make to our household. A woman shouldn't take it for granted that her husband leaves the warmth of their bed before the sun rises to provide for her needs. And a husband shouldn't take it for granted that his wife remains in that bed, which will likely be filled up with their children 30 minutes after he leaves. As he toils providing, she toils in putting what he has provided to use in service of their family. It's a beautiful 
and wonderful partnership, and there's nothing else like it on earth. Don't take it for granted. But it's so common that the woman fails to appreciate the work of her husband, and the husband fails to appreciate the work of his wife. Both believing somehow that the other one has it easier, or carries a lighter burden, or whatever it is. Few women know 7 a.m., 21 degrees, hammer in hand, frame up the walls. They don't know because they aren't supposed to. They don't know because they aren't supposed to. Similarly, few men know 10 hours with four children pulling at them incessantly, taking everything they've got, mind, body, soul, without even a moment in the restroom, without hearing the call of your name. Mom, mom, mom. We don't know because we aren't supposed to. So rather than reviling the other one for their lack of understanding of your position, simply celebrate them for them fulfilling the position that God has given them. That'll go a long way in the right direction. Honor your spouse for the unique contribution that he or she makes to your family rather than comparing their contribution to yours. Now, back to whose she is. She is an heir with you of the grace of life, or in pop evangelical lingo, she's a daughter of the king. And truthfully, the only problem with the prolific use of that daughter of the king language is that far too frequently it's found in the mouth of rebellious daughters who reference their status as daughters of the king as some sort of a justification for their rebellion against his commands. When in truth, their citation of their status only indicts them all the more, doesn't it? So when the unsubmissive wife says that she's seeking separation from her husband because he doesn't treat her like the daughter of the king that she is, she doesn't seem to notice that she's disobeying the king while she's bragging about being his daughter. It's not a good look. Not a good look. So ladies, your status as an heir of the grace of life is not for you to defiantly declare to your husband as you reprimand him for his poor treatment of you. It is for him to declare to you as he honors you. Let him honor you, rather than you telling him how honorable you are. See the difference between those two things. Because self-aggrandizement is unattractive on everyone, and it rarely gets you what you actually want. Third, how does he to whom your wife belongs want her to be returned to him? Well, the one to whom your wife belongs wants her returned to him in better condition than she was in before he entrusted her to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28 says this, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, word, of, of, excuse me, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. So as Christ will present us back to the Father who gave us to him, so we will present our brides back to God. And the expectation is that she is better off for having been under our headship, as the church is better for having been under Christ's headship. So you know who she is, you know whose she is, and you know how you're supposed to return her. Now live with your wife according to that knowledge in an understanding way, honoring her as the weaker vessel. Now, in terms of some measure of practicality, as respectful Southerners, save some of the rogue New Yorkers and Washingtonians who've wandered into our midst, coffee day. <laughs> 
But most of us, we're respectful Southerners, right? So we know the generic ways that this understanding of feminine weakness should be honored. Men give their wives their coats when they're cold because we all know that it's better for him to be uncomfortable than for her to be uncomfortable, right? We know this. Men open doors for women because we all know that it's better for him to open it than for her to open it for him. We understand these things. Men carry heavy loads for their wives because we all know that God made him strong so that he can honor her with his strength. These are cultural expressions of biblical truths. We ought to keep those practicals alive and embrace them rather than thoughtlessly allowing them to die with the next generation. But there's more. Don't just live with your wife according to that generic knowledge. Be a student of your wife specifically. Be a student of your wife specifically so that you know her. Identify her particular weaknesses and her unique needs and find ways to cover them with your strength. For instance, a husband's failure to honor his wife's weakness and live with her in an understanding way is analogous to a woman failing to submit to her husband. That's him failing in what God's called him to, just like we could talk about her failing in what God's called her to. So the man who knows that his wife is fueled by deep conversation with him, but routinely neglects to oblige her because he has another YouTube video to watch or another book to read or wants to sneak in a quick workout, is just like the wife who comes slowly or dispassionately to the marriage bed or routinely disrespects her husband. So you know what your wife needs. You study her. And then you use your strength to provide those things. This is God's call to godly husbands. Now, as you know, any passage of Scripture can be, and generally at some point is, misapplied at best or weaponized at worst. The state has historically weaponized Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, telling Christians that their sacred text commands them to bend to whatever the state says. Slave masters have done the same with their slaves. Husbands have done the same with passages about their headship. And wives have done the same with passages like the ones that we study today. In fact, in large part, that's what the I'm a daughter of the king movement is. Right? It's, I'm going to take control over you by an appeal to my status. Right? You're not doing what I think you should do on the basis of what my, what my worth is, and so you need to straighten that up. Now, we could easily see that a husband may confuse leadership for an authoritarian imposition of his will without concern or regard for his wife. We could also easily see how a wife may confuse a husband's leadership for an authoritarian imposition of his will. Sometimes get these things confused. He can abuse his role, and she can abuse hers. A man can weaponize his strength, and a woman can weaponize her weakness. As I, was, as I was preparing this message, I had initially started to enumerate some of the ways that a wife may weaponize this text and use it to wield authority in the household, as is so common in our time. But then I realized two things. Number one, uh, Pastor Luke made it so that I couldn't do that because last week when he was talking about a wife's submission to her husband, he said, somehow we always manage to take passages about a wife's submission to her husband and make them about a man's failed leadership. And so I was like, I probably shouldn't then take a passage about a husband's leadership of his wife and make it about a wife's failure to submit. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why I decided not to do that. But then the other reason is that 
we don't actually need to go through a multiplicity of examples of the abuses of this text because Peter has already protected us from those abuses with what he's already stated. We could, of course, go through a host of examples and try to detail every specific practical, uh, practical uh, problem that could go wrong. But in principle, Peter's already given us the key to properly applying this text. It's found in the sequence of his letter. What did he say to both husbands and wives before he ever gave these instructions? Don't be controlled by the passions of the flesh, which is to return to your former ignorance. So I don't, I don't have a, a law for you to follow or a pocket-sized guide that will address every situation that you're going to run into in the walls of your house. I don't, I don't have that. And in truth, I believe that God didn't write that law intentionally. He gave you something more valuable than stone tablets to help you navigate these things. He gave you His indwelling Holy Spirit to produce fruit in your life. Galatians 5, 16-24 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's how you navigate these things. As a wife, when you want to point out that your husband isn't loving you or serving you or honoring your weakness properly, you don't feel like you're really being treated like a daughter of the king in this particular season, you consult the Holy Spirit who is in you to determine whether that is a helpful discussion to have or if that impulse comes from your fleshly desire to lead him instead of being led by him. And as a husband, when you make pronouncements for your household and lead it and issue directives for those who are under your authority, as you should do, you consult the Holy Spirit who is in you to determine whether or not your exercise of authority is in keeping with the goal that God has given to you to lead your family in holiness and in obedience to Christ, or if you're ignorantly bending them to your will without an understanding or caring for their needs. The ways that these abuses may manifest themselves are manifold, and we could be here all day endlessly talking about practical situations. But while those abuses are manifold, there's only one solution to all of them. It's a singular solution to all of them, and that is to walk by the Spirit and stop gratifying the desires of your flesh. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your help in this. We know that We've got a fine way of corrupting your word. You can give us a pure and perfect law. And we can bend it and twist it. And make ourselves somehow in authority over it. And make it work for our selfish ends. Great illustration of this obviously is the fact that the Pharisees were the ones who were ostensibly most concerned with your law. And we're simultaneously most in violation of it. So Father God, we, we ask that we may be spared from those kinds of abuses. 
We know that a wife can take a passage like today and she can use it to try to wrestle authority away from her husband. We know that a, wife, that a husband can take a passage like last week's and he can use it to be dictatorial in his home in the negative sense of the word. All of these things happen with great frequency. But we ask that you would spare us from them. Not because we're special, not because we're great, not because we're better Bible students, but because we resolve here and now that we're done gratifying the desires of our flesh and want to walk instead in accordance with your Spirit. So don't only teach us your word, but give us wisdom in the application of it even this week, that our households may be a sweet fragrance of obedience to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.